Fantasy Animation is an online educational resource dedicated to examining the relationship between fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. As well as this podcast, Fantasy Animation publishes a weekly blog featuring regular contributions from professional animators and academics and offering up creative insight into the history, theory and practice of making fantasy stories through cell, stop motion and digital animation. So, whether you're a budding creative, a fan, a student or a researcher interested in these overlapping medias, mediums and genres, be sure to find out more at fantasy-animation.org. But for now, do enjoy the show. We're broken people now We're burning now So cold and bleeding now, now, now Gonna let you Hello everybody and welcome to the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holiday, And your orc sidekick, Alex Sargent. You are indeed my orc sidekick and you've, you've sneakily given away the episode uh, or the film that we're doing for this episode. We've got another listener's choice for you mm-hmm. and we're doing Bright, which is a $90 million Netflix original uh, starring a host of famous faces including Will Smith um, uh, and Numi Rapace. And it's an odd one. Um, I've just come out of, uh, uh, well, I say just come out. I've just watched it. Um, I was going to say just come out of a screening, but we're not doing that anytime soon. Um, I watched it. It's odd. It's strange. I kind of like it. It was a sort of a doomed failure. But um, And I feel like, Alex, you're of the same same sort of opinion. You, you didn't hate it. You're sort of, how are you feeling? Middling to, to good yeah. on this one? I would say mid, yeah, middling, middling to fine. It, I, I thought the premise was really great, and I thought there were some fun things to talk about in terms of uh, the way the film uses sort of fairy tale races to talk about allegory and talk about contemporary race relations. Um, I don't necessarily think it's always particularly successful or knows what it's doing with it. Um, and I think there's an issue of tone management in the movie, but I think we could have a very productive conversation. Um, about uh, how the film skirts between its identity as a fantasy movie, its identity um, as a sort of cop um, drama, um, its sort of use of urban spaces, the clash between the urban and and sort of fantasy creatures, um, the role of allegory, which is something we've touched on the podcast before, but I'm hoping to sort of really get into in this episode. So for me, lots to talk about, um, very fantastical, um, but not necessarily successful all the way through. Yeah, I mean, I've got a few notes on sort of uh, social, you know, quote unquote, social discourse via fantasy. Um, but most of my my notes, I was thinking really about world building. And obviously, this was one of our alternative presents. Uh, and, we'll, and we'll come to the the, uh, the suggestions that we had uh, a little bit later on. But um, this was a suggestion based on our alternative presence. And actually, I think this idea of kind of fictionality and worldhood touches a little bit with debates um, within animation studies and the turn to sort of like space and, and world building. Uh, and so a few of my notes are on that, but also, uh, I guess, broader questions of fictional world building and, and what this means for um, the way we understand logic and uh, autonomy and believability and all those and the rules of a, of a particular kind of fictional world. So, yeah, I mean, it's a good one, I think, to certainly talk about those things, um, as well as a few little, you know, a peppering of animation um, along the way. Um, but as I said, this was a recommendation that was given to us by Murray Leader. Uh, who regular listeners of the podcast will or hopefully remember that he was a very special guest when we did our SCMS um, special episode, uh, um, well, I don't know, about a couple of years ago now. Uh, and he gave us a, a whole range of examples. Cast a Deadly Spell, which takes place in an alternate 1940s with magic. Uh, its sequel, Witch Hunt. And at the end of all these wonderful suggestions, he just put one line, which was, 
that disastrous Will Smith thing, Bright, <laughs> is a good example, I suppose. So we immediately, I think me and Alex took that immediately as a challenge accepted um, sort of scenario yes. uh, and and off we went and so uh, Bright is uh, yeah it's it's I don't really know sort of where to begin it's our second Netflix we've done Disenchantment which is obviously a Netflix um, special television show this is our first I think Netflix original series uh, as I said at the start 90 million dollars set in an alternative Los Angeles and my first note is why is the fairy in the bird feeder so there we go Alex that's your that's your starter for 10 so what do we what do what are our initial thoughts um with right. regards to bright right well i think i think we need to sort of do the setup if no if people haven't seen it um yet which is that um essentially uh and you can tell me chris whether i've done justice to this the film posits uh an alternative world that's sort of a what if if lord of the rings is the medieval period this is contemporary 2020 in the sense that the the film is set in a you know um, in a in a human city is it is it set in los angeles or yes. it's set in yeah yeah los angeles right. it's an, an an elfified los angeles so it's the <laughs> los angeles skyline um i was reading a bit about its visual effects um which was the convergence between four four different companies um and one of the sort of uh, pieces that i read on the film was about the los angeles the real world los angeles skyline that was sort of tweaked and amended with um elf and orc architecture architecture if you will uh, i certainly will and um and you're you that's right up your bag chris because you love an digitally altered landscape i do certainly a digitally altered urban landscape Ugh. that's right within your wheelhouse yeah 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 why do you love them so much so uh, I, I don't know so I t- it comes from i think uh one an interest obviously in animation more broadly and if that's not become clear over the last 50 odd episodes um animation's ability to sort of well build and there is i guess certainly a um uh, a prerequisite or there's been a preoccupation within animation studies about uh, animation as an inherently spatial art writing that has matured around this idea of animated worlds. So I'm thinking of um, uh, Suzanne Buckens. There's an editor collection called Animated Worlds. Eilish Wood has got an article called Reanimating Space. What do animated worlds do? Uh, and Buckens says that, you know, these are realms of cinematic experience that are accessible to the spectator only through the techniques available in animation filmmaking. So animated worldhood, I think, is, is a particularly sort of interesting area. What do animated worlds do, can do, should do? Um, what are the worlds prone to do versus live action forms of fiction? Uh, and then coupled to that with my i teach a, a very small small module on on fictional worlds and hopefully i'll be able to drip feed some of that writing um and some of that really interesting scholarship um into the next 50 minutes to an hour or so just to sort of flesh out i think what what bright is doing and why why it's clever i think perhaps more clever than perhaps some critics thought uh, in the way that it's doing what it's doing with fantasy and what what it means to, to integrate fantasy in this way um so yeah a, a, a digitally altered landscape is very is very um uh, exciting to me sure so we have we, we enter into a digitally altered los angeles and it's digitally altered because um essentially as we find out through sort of backstory um, a lord of the rings-esque scenario took place approximately a thousand years ago some you know you know it's classic classic lord of the rings stuff uh races teamed up um a battle against a dark lord uh most of the races are on one side the nominally good side and then the evil side of the dark lord which was eventually vanquished um with the of course the orcs 
And this has created an almost sort of um, apartheid, or to be honest, I guess, like, uh, you know, a segregated contemporary American um, reality whereby we have most races living in harmony with one another, um, elves, um, uh, fairies are not so much in harmony. They're more sort of treated like pests, but they're sort of certainly flapping about in all their CGI, um, tastic fashion. Um, and the story centers on the uh, police partnership between uh, Will Smith's character, um, uh, who is a human, and Joel Edgerton's character, who is an orc, and he is the first orc to serve in the LAPD. So the film essentially plays like a crime drama. Um, in which a you know um, a racist cop played by Will Smith, and I think the casting of Will Smith in this role is, is interesting. Um, actually, sort of hell's nominally progressive views, but views that are challenged by his sort of um, inherent dislike of his partner just because he is an orc, and a, a plot unfolds that involves magic um, and crime and gangsters. Um, and uh, violence, and eventually you can imagine a sort of redeeming arc whereby Will Smith learns um, perhaps that his partner isn't so bad after all, despite being an orc. That's about that's about a fair synopsis, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's in terms of the the uh, topics that it touches on. You're right. It's uh, in terms of its orc clan politics. It's about yes. um, respect and tolerance, and it's a social class commentary. It's about systemic uh, violence. It's about uh, a contemporary Los Angeles whose history. And this is the thing. I, I was wondering whether the convergence of, of contemporary Los Angeles with this sort of history of magic actually impacts its culture, technology, and politics. And and perhaps one of the sort of criticisms I've got of the film is that it doesn't perhaps interrogate that enough we were talking before we went on air that this felt like a three-hour movie cut down to two and so I'd like to know a little bit more about the kind of culture technology and politics of this world fleshed out sort of thing but um, it's heavy I think it would be fair to say it's heavy in its metaphors um, Mm -hmm. in the way that it it uses and handles magic to create, I think at one point Will Smith talks about a ghetto fairy tale and it's exactly that. It's that kind of convergence between um, the real world, this real sort of urban space um, with, with magic. And we talked about this on the podcast before, you know, the, the, the who frame Roger rabbit oil and water syndrome, which is a sort of convergence between, yeah, a kind of gritty, modern fantasy setting or in the case of Hoover and Roger Rabbit 1940s um, noir uh, cityscape uh, and this sort of like yeah fantasy intrusion that allows the film to talk about institutional racism so there is a lot and masquerading as as you say kind of speciesism through this orc Mm. and um, and fairy and uh, elf sort of um, uh, landscape so there is a lot going on in the film i think um and so i'm sort of excited to pick it apart a little bit in a good way yeah i think i think you're right i think so essentially how much you like the film is going to be probably dependent on how intriguing you find that central premise and you know as as someone that's had enough and and has read quite a bit of sort of fantasy debates over um you know the the tolkien mode of fantasy which has this very stable um set of uh species a very stable iconography and is sort of rooted in anglo-saxon myth and legends english folklore uh, european folklore and and is rooted in a sense of sort of romanticized and um fantastical history um there's been a lot of writing on the sort of inherent conservatism of that in that part of the pleasure in something like lord of the rings game of thrones is a is a pleasure in a return to a certain 
way of being where, you know, um, uh, you know, particularly in terms of politics, politics are controlled through the individual. Um, and there's a certain, you know, regressive quality to all these um, these films. And what I quite like is that this movie attempts to um, to play with that and to offer us a sort of contemporary vision of a Tolkien mold fantasy set with the same stable set of creatures, but in a world um, more, much more like our own. Um, and therefore it, it, it starts to ask relatively provocative questions. So, you know, in the first couple of minutes, say five, 10 of this movie, there was a line where I think Will Smith says fairy lives don't matter. Um, and one can't help, you know, um, and be reminded um, you know, and, and the film was made a few years ago, but but of course it was made during the Black Lives Matter movement had had established itself, but not become the cultural force that it is of the sort of attempt to map um, some problems that are inherent within the fantasy genre, problems of speciesism, orcs are evil, humans are good, um, all that kind of stuff, and, and critique them by critique by sort of mapping them onto the logic of contemporary politics and contemporary race relations um, and sort of saying, why is this okay, but this isn't okay. Now, whether the film has any success at doing that is probably another thing we could debate about. I think it sets up far more interesting ideas in the first two minutes than it ever manages to then interrogate. But I do think the idea of mapping the logic of a sort of high fantasy uh, storytelling onto contemporary urban settings and therefore using that almost to critique. If you see it as a critique of traditional fantasy storytelling, it becomes far more interesting and far more subversive than if you see it as a satire of contemporary race relations, because it, it's certainly not very good at doing the latter. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I, I think the film is perhaps not at its best when it's a fantasy story that's sort of been covered with a trump era coat of paint i don't think mm. it's perhaps successful in that way and i think part of the reason for that is that it does um i don't know and maybe this is actually what makes the film really interesting to talk about that it it's sort of I, I jotted down a few things you know and it's very as i said obvious in its metaphors and its language in many ways when it's talking about um institutional racism and and um the idea of a clan and a clique and uh Joel Edgerton's character, uh, Jacoby, being this first orc uh, police police um, uh, hire. Essentially, he's called at one point a diversity hire. So it very, it paints with a very broad brush to continue the art metaphor and paint metaphor. It paints with a very broad brush in terms of its um, uh, what it's doing, its racial markers in terms of its language. You have dialogue like uh, there's one moment where an internal affairs officer who is essentially coming along to try and dispute uh, Jacoby's uh, series of events where he let uh, he let a, um, a, a, an orc, a fellow orc who had shot at Ward, so that's Will Smith's character, he'd let him go. And he's talking, and the internal affairs officer kind of comes along to do his sort of um, internal affairs business, and they're always they're always evil, uh, or they're always antagonistic. And he says, he's talking about the the, the qualities of, of an orc, and says it's not racism, it's physics. Trying to sort of qualify views on exceptionalism by talking about kind of a fantasy biology. And then the rest of the film is littered with these sorts of... Um, moments where slurs essentially where i think the film is again heavy in its metaphors so talks uh, there's a, a moment sort of later on where part of um jacoby's uh, i guess rejection by his fellow clan is that he's called a round tooth so his 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 teeth were removed he looks more hospitable i think as a police officer but he's got a round tooth he's got a false orc and he's called an unblooded coward 
So these are all wielded in the film as a way of uh, marking out um, Jacoby the Orc's sort of exceptionalism, both and in the fact that he is non-human, but also to show that he is different. He's even different from his own his own clan. So it and then it uses that to talk about kind of race and stuff. Um, I guess my question about fantasy or the the again you, goes back to your point about the film is interesting depending on how interested you find or how interested you are in in the central premise uh, and for me the film perhaps didn't do it sets up really some really nice stuff in the first couple of minutes but it doesn't do much with sort of say intersectionality it doesn't position the thugs uh, the orcs sorry as anything other than thugs so it doesn't sort of nuance the representation of the orcs by talking about the intersection of class and race and if intersectionality is 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 the moment or the idea where multiple forms of oppression compound themselves ultimately the the orcs are painted again with this in, in a very broad way they are they are kind of thugs and and that makes it easier to identify jacoby as the the sort of messiah figure who ultimately rises again by the end of the film so i felt that it didn't sort of give the nuance and detail to to the orcs and and flesh out their clan politics in a way that was perhaps satisfactory so here's where I think I'm slightly more um, uh, up for the movie, and 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 I think find, found it slightly more successful. I agree with you that the film sort of is a mixed bag, but I think the main yeah. issue with it is tone management and a sort of a three a three way competition that is going on throughout between sort of three aesthetics: uh, the fantastic, um, the uh, allegoric. Um, or the metaphoric and the the sort of parodic or satiric, and I think it's really interesting because we're essentially talking about three modes that are very often overlapping, and have been written about both for how complementary they are of one another and how oppositional they are to one another. And I think here is a case where actually the three modes don't weld together very well. Maybe it's a case that you know two's company, three's a crowd. Because if if you see it if you see it as an allegory of contemporary race relations, which it tries to be certainly on occasions, then the critique you're throwing at it is completely accurate. If you see, um, and and it would fit with, you know, and, and what the problem with, with trying to fit that with a sort of magical structure, and this is a classic, I've talked about um, the idea of a thinning narrative in the past. Um, this is a classic thinning narrative, actually. Beneath the fact it's a cop drama, it's also a film about the fact that a world has lost magic, uh, magic is refound, and and magic is attempted to be brought back into the world. So it's, it's in one level, um, a thinning narrative that tries to sort of celebrate magic, celebrate the fantastical, but it does it both by allegorizing the fantastical, which is which is hard to do right for lots of different reasons, which we can get into, and to and to use it as a vehicle for satire, um, and that's where we get Will Smith. You know, Will Smith's casting is really interesting, both in terms of its race relations, but also in that Will Smith partners an orc uh, as a police drama um, is 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 you know it's Men in Black too. Um, it's, 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 and, and there are scenes in this movie, which are, um, are very much in the more men in black satirical, it's funny mode. Um, and you can see men in black in many ways as a satire. Men in black's a great movie, by the way. I don't know if that yep. needs saying on the podcast, we yep. should do an episode of men in black. Sometime. We should. And men about, black, halfway, about halfway through bright, I thought, why didn't we do men in black? But carry yeah. on. Well, this is it, right? You know, that's probably the ma- the main criticism of, of bright is that why isn't this men in black? Yeah. Um, because 
Men in Black you can read as a sort of pretty fun uh, satire on immigration and immigration uh, laws in the United States. Um, and you, there's an opportunity to make a film a bit like that in terms of race relations. Because what you're, so what you're saying about the orc um, and the way orcs are represented... If this, if you made Will Smith a white character and you made Joel Edgerton a black character and you applied the same schema, you are essentially talking about every single cop drama or at least about a hundred cop dramas that have been made. You know, you're talking about the movie where um, the black uh, police officer from the wrong side of the city um, chooses his cop identity over his race identity um, and is redeemed as a result because of the narrative. And there is an opportunity to make that movie and pull it and make that movie make that narrative strange by pulling it through the realm of the fantastic and using the fantastic as a prism through which you look at these genre tropes and go isn't that ridiculous isn't that stupid why are all the orcs grunting why are the all the orcs reduced to sort of their bestial components and there you've got something but unfortunately the film doesn't quite know whether it's using fantasy as a vehicle for satire or using fantasy as a vehicle for allegory so what it ends up doing is sort of neither and then the fantasy is is not particularly magical either so you've got a sort of um a, a disgusting source of three different aesthetics trying to compete with one another um and it's not that pleasant to digest so so from what you're saying the the treatment of the orcs as um less than nuanced and complex in their characterization as as sort of uh, archetypes or caricatures or stereotypes or whatever you want to call it um is interesting because it taps into the ways in which non-white identities in these kinds of buddy movies have historically been positioned. Is that what you mean? I, that... I think I'm saying it could have been more yeah. interesting if yeah. they'd have gone down that road more, um, but they only really flirt with doing that. You know? okay. Yes, exactly. Um, well, it, it hits a sort of continually um, continuous argument when, in sort of debates over race and the representation of race in fantasy storytelling, which is one side of the argument says that an orc is an inherently racist caricature um, presenting a story in which a, a single, an entire species is um, irredeemably evil is a racist trope and therefore encourages racist values. Um, and um, an anti-racist critique would be to, would be to call that out for what it is and stop reading it, frankly, or at the very least adopt a critical approach to the storytelling. Another is to say that um, an orc is an impossible creature if an orc is is racist, it is racist in a manner that is impossible, and therefore is just as likely to be critiquing racist structures through its impossibility and and highlighting the strangeness and the fantastical nature of racism and racist logic as it is to cement and affirm it. Um, you should write about that. that. You should write huh? about that. You should write about that in a little <laughs> book on Lord of the Rings, Alex. <laughs> so, like. Um, uh, it's really difficult to sort of, and obviously the answer is it depends on the film, depends on the story, depends on how you read it, and um, probably somewhere in between the two. But but you know there is a wet. Basically, it comes down to is fantasy a metaphor for some sort of cloaked reality? Is it a mimetic tool? Is it actually representing the world as it could be or as it is? And the writer is using um, fantastical creatures to say real life things, or is it? sort of subverting real life things but and 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 satirizing them by making them objects of of the fantastic so um, if that does that sense. mean that that kind of that three um pronged sort of typology yeah. so the fantastic the allegoric and the parodic yes. is bright then a film that sharpens our awareness of what each of those categories 
could look like because I don't think the film obviously the film is not a parody it's it's you know it's it's a satire I think on certain kinds of things and certain kinds of race relations in in contemporary America um and deliberately so and and in a minute I'd like to talk about whiteness um which is equally represented in the film um and so so is, is bright then for you that makes a little bit of sense in the way that bright doesn't quite work within that we can find differences between the fantastic the allegoric and the parodic the way in which fantasy is mobilized in these kinds of stories i think that's exactly it is that is that is that if if what's bright is interesting almost the things that are wrong with bright are as equally interesting as the stuff that is right with bright because right with bright is a is is a is a hard thing to say by the way um but the things that are right with bright um and the things that are wrong with bright um are equally interesting because what they do is they highlight the murky world between these three competing overlapping um aesthetics and there's been lots you know there's uh, in terms of the relationship between fantasy and allegory and the relation between fantasy and satirical there are as many works that um argue that those two things are oppositional as they do argue that they are complementary in in some way so it's mm. it's in, you know i'd almost like to set students um some reading from that debate and then make them watch bright because that's that's a really interesting way of of playing out the issues that come with trying to make these things come together as one because they're all actually fundamentally quite different yeah no absolutely i I feel like i feel a hasty syllabus rewrite coming on um Right, we're going to pause the podcast a little bit uh, and our conversations on Bright to talk to you listeners uh, about our also-rans when it comes to alternative presence, our alternative alternative presence, if you will. What a gag, Chris, what a gag. Yes, we, we had, um, as always, loads of suggestions online for various uh, examples of fantasy animation we could be doing on the podcast and we thought it'd be a shame not to share a few of them with you um, in the middle of the episode here. So um, from Twitter, we have an academic named Kat Lester um, who works at the University of Birmingham, who's specializes in uh horror cinema and its relationship to childhood um and she has suggested a back to the future part two um i love back to the future i love all three of them um i constantly oscillate about which is my favorite i know exactly what cat's talking about in terms of part two and and its use of um you know an alternative 1985 um is it is it animationy enough for us to ever do on the podcast, Chris? Please it, think of a reason why it is. I mean, yes, I think it probably is. I think the use of sort of split screens and the fact that you have kind of two Michael J. Foxes interacting at various moments, um, I think you could definitely pass that off as as um, uh, animation. And certainly, the third one has a lot in terms of the um, the kind of. Uh, steampunk aesthetic the uh the use of the wild west i mean i yeah they're, you're right all three are wonderful um and it's like picking picking your favorite it's like picking your favorite toy story film um okay so we also had a recommendation on uh, again on twitter from james mcdowell um who teaches film studies at the university of warwick and he suggested csa the confederate states of america so this is really getting into sort of alternative histories alternative timelines so it's essentially a, a mockumentary um from the u.s uh, and it's essentially offering an alternate time timeline where the confederacy wins the american civil war and essentially establishes a new um states of america if you like so i don't know too much about the film i also don't know how much animation it's got in it um so it's one it's from 2004 so it's perhaps one to sort of uh, to source out but it's um yeah it's i think it's very much within the wheelhouse of what would have happened if so we've, we've kind of been talking in our conversations um uh, around bright about the sort of alternative nature of worldhood and fictionality and things like this so it's very much within that sort of um you using alternative history to sort of satirize i think um the the current state of play so thank you james yeah 
Yeah, it sounds like a really interesting premise. I really want to check the movie out, actually. Sounds just... We've done documentaries on the show before. We've never done a mockumentary, which seems like a, um, yeah. a wasted opportunity. We should definitely think about doing that sometime. Yeah. Uh, we've had another suggestion, um, again, on Twitter uh, from Dan, who should be drawing. Dan is a uh, London-based uh, animator. And he said, it's not animated. Well, I'll stop you right there, Dan. Yeah. But uh, it's not animated. But Children of Men, um, that's, a, that's a gem of a film. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, well, one, uh, Dan, it is animated. Uh, if we count VFX as animation, and I, I and Chris, do we? We we do. I mean, if we count um, <laughs> entirely computer generated uh, birthing scenes with a baby uh, <laughs> as animated, then yes, this film is animated. But uh, but that in itself, yeah. the fact that it's not animated, or the mm. the suggestion that it's not animated, um, I think raises bigger questions. You know about what we think about when we come to to animation. But um, it's not a- absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's what it's it's a. Uh, it's not one of your well is it one of your faves alex i feel like it's we again it's a film we taught but no it's not chris it's not one of my faves no um hey i don't hate the movie but i'm growing to hate it because i just can't stand everyone going on about how good it is i I think it's a thoroughly mediocre film okay um uh, and i say this loud and proud on on the podcast um but i don't say it loud and proud in the halls of uh university of portsmouth because of course i work with the um Steam Deborah Shaw, who who specialises in um, Alfonso Cuaron. So I don't actually know what her feelings are on this particular movie, uh, but um, I'm too scared to ask her in person, it would seem. So I'm communicating indirectly via a podcast. You coward. Okay, so um, <laughs> I mean, we had a host of other suggestions just to pick out a final one. Um, this is on Reddit uh, from uh, the Scotty345. So this was interesting because it's a suggestion for a video game. So the video game is called The New Order, uh, Last Days of Europe. And I'm going to read out um their blurb description because it's sort of really engaged with what we were asking i think when it comes to alternative presence so um it takes a really critical eye on what would happen if the nazis had actually succeeded in conquering europe and the result is that the regime was just far too unstable to last um and then talks about germany how it was content in a cold war with the united states and japan both of which are dealing with their own massive internal issues because the usa would probably have broken down politically so there's a really interesting um description summary of what uh, the new order of the last days of europe uh, is about and it actually reminded me checking out um the scotty 345's description um similarities to a recent tv program called ssgb from 2017 which essentially offered a similar alternative history it was a bbc series i think with sam riley and kate bosworth um and based on a novel by uh, len dyton who also wrote the ipcrest file so what would have happened if the nazis had been triumphant so that in itself uh, provided some provocative imagery about Certainly, I think in SSGB, there's a shot of Buckingham Palace with um, sort of Nazi insignia up the side. So it's a really, um, this idea of alternative presence, I think, really yields quite provocative um, uh, imagery and a kind of hypothetical conditional of what if. Um, But where does this leave us in terms of we've we've done Bright, we're halfway through Bright. Uh, Alex, where does this leave us in terms of uh, next week's or next episode's uh, listener's choice? Well, Chris, we've been thinking, haven't we, about what our next uh, listener theme would be, uh, which we'd like your suggestions on. And we've come up with um, um, our f- what, what we'd like to know, your best fantasy animation buddies. Um, and we're, we're interested in this because obviously we're talking about the unlikely pairing today of uh, Will Smith and Nork. Um, so we want to know what other sort of friendships in the world of fantasy animation um, you think are worth talking about, worth celebrating, worth um, thinking about. Um, maybe they're really unlikely pairings like this one. Um, to, I'm thinking off the top of my head something like you know Shrek and Donkey, or are we thinking of some sort of really sort of you know wonderful 
friendships. Maybe the friendship between um, the dwarfs in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Although you can't have that one because you've already done it. Yeah. Um, so give us your favourite uh, fantasy animation friendships, your unlikely pairings, your interspecies alliance, if you will. <laughs> um, and I think there's a kind of host to, to, to choose from. So hopefully this will, will get get listeners thinking about, um, I think, buddy movies more broadly. Obviously, something I think previously we talked on the podcast um, in terms of sort of late 80s, 90s Hollywood, biracial buddy pairings. How does that perhaps translate to animation? So think think Linguini and Remy, you know, think you think you're Ratatouille, think you um, think you kind of yeah, Shrek and Donkeys, your Woody and Buzzes um, and then get in touch. Yeah, let, let us know via uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Reddit, um, all of those through the handle FANANIM Research, F A N A N I M Research. And you can also do the old fashioned approach and email us at fananimresearch at gmail.com. And we will share as many on the show next week, as well as uh, selecting one for us to cover. Um, on the next on the episode in a month's time remember so we do this once a month wonderful so alex we should uh you are my buddy and let's get back to the show i so I, yeah i wanted to talk a little bit about whiteness because one of the ways that i think bright achieves um or it seeks to achieve some of its pot- potency if you like is through its positioning of elves um and early on in the film so the idea i think as with all buddy movies ever um they are a, they are a reluctant pairing there i've said it um but by goodness by the end they're going to get on so jacoby and ward so joel edgerton's character and then will smith's character daryl ward um are unlikely pairings they've they've they sort of um an interspecies alliance that get together but ultimately uh, there is a lot of resistance to to jacoby being the first orc policeman and ultimately that fuels a little bit of resentment between the two characters that in other in another film would be played entirely for comedy but here it's treated with a degree of mm, kind of tense certainly a, a threat of violence between them and which ultimately escalates mm. as the film proceeds uh, and then at one point early on in the film they both then go to elf town which is essentially a space for uh, you know it's kind of uh, white very white middle class uh if not higher, uh, a space of high fashion and exotic cars. And actually the, t- the style of the film changes. You get kind of sh- shots of, of, of glamorous women getting out of, getting out of um, sports cars. And, and I was just trying to get my head around the idea of whiteness in the film because we, I think we all struggle with, with the ways, well, not struggle, but we, we encounter challenges in the way that we teach race in the, in the classroom and, and um, whiteness being this, I, I mean, I, Richard Dyer has written on whiteness as being difficult to talk about because it's really about nothing, or it seems like at first glance to be about nothing in particular. Things are always other things before they are about whiteness. They are about um, Mm. uh, kind of national identity or they are about class before they are about whiteness, whereas blackness or non-white identities tends to trump everything else. So things are always about non-white identities and always about blackness before they are about you know the color purple is richard dyer's good example the color purple will always be a film about blackness before it's a film about family and and society and all these kind of class and all these kinds of things and so i i wondered actually what you make within your reading of the film and your mm. kind of knowledge of of fantasy in relation to to race and orcs and all this kind of thing and elves obviously which are again i think in lord of the rings are very white both in design, clothing, and hair. So I just wonder what the the sort of we've got Elf Town, we've got rich elves who are very white. 
the antagonist of yeah, the film yeah. is is what. So I just wonder what what we can do, or if you had any thoughts on on that that are clearer than mine. <laughs> well, I don't know if I've got if they're clearer, but hey, throw more mud at it, and some of it will stick, right? Um, but um, I'm glad you mentioned that sequence because that's exactly an example of sort of the opposite of what I was saying about the, its treatment of orcs in that in that that sequence is gets it right, the tone right, because that. In, by, by by making elves a representative figure of whiteness and making the mirror between whiteness as essentially a middle class, well, upper middle class, um, you know, world of privilege, and by attributing that to a different race, the film manages to make strange a trope that wouldn't be so strange if it were a bunch of white people walking around a, a 1980s cop movie. Mm. Um, if they drew, drove through Beverly Hills and it was like that... Um, we could have an interesting conversation about whiteness, but I don't think the viewer, the sort of nominal inscribed viewer, would be encouraged to see the world of Elftown as such an odd place as uh, we might find Rodeo Drive uh, mm. if we were walking around it now. Um, so, so I think that is a moment where the where, where it, the tone is is managed right, and it does do something kind of fun and interesting. In, with, in terms of race um, and it's almost the antithesis of what we're talking about in terms of um, black identity and I don't know what that says in terms of power relations because maybe there's it's a case where uh, whiteness can take more subversion um, and yet feel still like it's not you know it can take it can it can be mocked without being um, without its power structure being subverted just through the, the inserent you know it's it, I'm reminded of writing on masculinity where it said that sort of masculinity um, can take the the bearer of the gaze and 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 can be turned into an, an object of spectacle momentarily because it can bear that it can bear that um, before taking back control over the power relations in the way that um, femininity can't. So you can turn Daniel Craig into an ob- uh, into a you know a specimen of of erotic desire, but he'll quickly take control of the narrative and 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 the, and the storytelling again in a way you can't do with um ursula andress in dr no so uh so i wonder if there's a certain similar relationship going on here whiteness can take it but blackness can't and i don't mean that therefore blackness is more fragile um but i'm saying that sort of maybe that maybe maybe the fact that that sequ- that one sequence works better than the other is actually more about our contemporary society than it is about anything going on in the filmmaking itself mm. uh well a couple of things one thanks for the yeah. bomb reference we got that in yeah. We had to get it in. Yeah, got that in. Um, uh, I, yeah, second, I wonder whether that sequence also works because of th- th- that moment. Because I was trying to think about alignment, um, allegiance, and subjectivity. So we don't. I don't think our allegiance is with. Uh, and, and and I always again, if we're thinking about fantastic, allegoric, and parodic as things that get mm. muddled. Um, I, I you know I, the the idea of subjectivity, alignment, and allegiance being this myth where if you see the world through the eyes of a particular character you align with that character no you don't you just see the world through their eyes so it's so i think allegiance wise the film is interesting because in no way do you is your allegiance with the police because of the a lot of them are corrupt uh, and there's some interesting I, I don't really know what to make of rodriguez the mexican cop mm. who says things that like mexicans are still getting blamed for the alamo um as a way of momentarily deflecting you know that the, uh, America has only just got to grips with Mexicans as opposed to orcs. And what's yeah. that saying about the two, um, the two figures in the film, Rodriguez and, and Jacoby? Um, but I don't think your allegiance is with the cops, um, and I don't know. 
about subjectivity i mean alignment you're aligned through the narrative i think with obviously will smith and and mm. and joel edgerton because that's how buddy movies work your alignment is with those characters even if your allegiance with them is slightly off um and then subjectivity so i was thinking the way that 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 trip to elf town works and will smith says oh i hate elf town um and i think the film in that moment shares his point of view and i was thinking i wonder whether that's a moment where our position as spectators is made clear. We're kind of critiquing, we're critiquing whiteness, and that, or it may, or certainly it made it was a moment that made me think. Oh, so our, I'm seeing I'm seeing this world through the eyes of a non-white character. I'm looking at the absurdity and the um, superficiality of um, prosperous um, neoliberal whiteness or capitalist whiteness. You know, you see, as I said, uh, you see shopping bags and you see uh, high fashion and sports cars. And I just thought, I wonder, yeah, the, the film is, mm, is never as, as interesting as it is after the first sort of 25 minutes. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, again, I don't really know what to sort of, what to sort of make of that, but you're right. That sequence kind of stuck out where I thought, oh, this is a really pointed, pointed critique at, at its target. Um, well, I guess the, you know, the, 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 the casting of Will Smith, is really important to talk about in that respect. And I hadn't, yeah, I hadn't thought about it. Of course, we're seeing Elf Town. It's not just that they're elves. It's also that we're seeing it through the eyes of an African-American man. Um, mm. And, and you know, that's a really important part of the way this film successfully or unsuccessfully tries to negotiate race relations because we're, we're talking about L.A., an L.A. with, you know, historic... Um, violence and 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 t racial tensions in african-american courts but of course also with mexican identity you know it's it's you know it's 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 you know it's equally problematic in that respect um so it's an interesting setting um and then you've got will smith as a sort of surrogate figure both in terms of you know the spaces we inhabit and where we go on the journey and who we who we go on the journey with but also he is the figure that goes through the transformative the, the really banal transformative transformative journey from racist cop to not racist cop um at the end of the movie the the green book the the driving miss daisy from uh approach to this sort of stuff yeah so and it's and it's very 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 interesting um that it's Will Smith. Uh, why don't we start with that? Yeah. No. Well, you know, uh, uh, there's a bit. There's a bit at the beginning of the film where, in fact, just before he he sort of massacres that fairy and the purple bluish sure. blood flies everywhere, and you think, hmm, this is set up nicely the theme of tolerance amongst amongst the police force. But he his neighbours are, and I think this is where the kind of the the the, the ghetto of ghetto fairy tales comes from. You know, he's he's sitting, or his his neighbours are. Um, uh i guess a, a community of of um uh or a, a small black community sitting on the front lawn and he says something in passing like keep playing the music really loudly because i want to sell you know it's not like i'm trying to sell this house so thanks for that and so yeah. he's kind of it's set up as a sort of yeah he's antagonistic anyway like he's an antagonistic grumpy um and a, what why wouldn't he be because he's been shot and injured however many years ago or whatever uh, and here we are and he's 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 the tommy lee jones in the tommy lee jones and will smith men in black relationship mm. he's now the grumpy one sort of thing um mm. and so when you see that moment between him and his neighbors it kind of comes across as a class war because 
he's trying to sort of navigate his own identity and his house is is not uh, spectacular but it's but then he his 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 antagonism towards class extends the other way when he then visits elf town uh, will smith is an interesting character uh, sorry an actor anyway and we've talked previously on the podcast about his role in the remake of aladdin of course mm. um and there's a, a bit of academic writing around coolness, black identity and coolness that actually uses uh, Will Smith uh, and the film Hitch. So a 2005, I think, romantic comedy uh, where he embodies the magical Negro archetype. So the idea that, that there is a, uh, an inherent mysticism or a fundamental mysticism to black identity that allows it to access naturally uh, elements of cool, hip hipness within um, identity politics that can then be transferred onto, uh, in the case of Hitch, Kevin James's character, a white male. Uh, and then you get bigger questions around kind of minstrelsy and whiteness performing as blackness and all these sort of interesting debates. Um, but yeah, I mean, Will Smith, it's, it's, the film is obviously a star vehicle for him. Um, he's not the alien. He's not hide, you know, hidden behind uh, makeup, you know, it's all prosthetic makeup. I think certainly in the in the construction yeah. of Jacoby as a character, whereas there are other visual effects in the film uh, around the magic wand uh, and the articulation of of this sort of uh, elfified Los Angeles that are digital. But he's not hidden, so it's very much a kind of a star vehicle for him. But I was struggling to place his blackness within within the film more broadly. Um, well, I think the, the only other thing to add to the, to that sort of summary of his star persona is that he is a he plays roles or his, his most fondly remember roles are roles in which he either narratively or through the reception of the show has made white audiences white masses comfortable in black space back black spaces mm. um to be sort of crude crudely um you know schismatic like that but you know you know if you think even back to things like fresh prince of bel-air or um uh or men in black uh men in black he's an lap um, pd cop who then gets brought into this white world of, of these men in black who are you know it's not it's it's an undercurrent in the movie but um they're all white other than him yeah, um yeah. and 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 so what you've got there is a character a, a black a black man who is who is comfortable inhabiting white spaces um you well, know. yeah i was thinking about his role in wild wild west yeah. where he where he's sort of he's sort of uh, if if we know you know we know the the westerns history with race relations, um, and so yeah, I hadn't, I kind of hadn't hadn't thought about his role as a star, kind of smoothing out anxieties around his black identity in that and way. He, and he does it sort of largely by um, y- you know trying to square the circle of of cultural um, cultural definitions of of blackness versus cultural definitions of whiteness, right? So. Um, it's interesting you mentioned that that you know that beginning sequence with the music. Well, yes, it is to do with class, but actually it's to do with race also. If you if you sort of you know think of sort of what definitions of um, African American male identity are often defined as in terms of loudness, brashness, um, you know all this kind of stuff versus white muteness, white uh, uh, you know uh, reserve um, reservedness, quiet ne- quiet neighborhoods are good neighborhoods, loud neighborhoods are problematic neighborhoods so he is asserting a certain class dynamic that is racialized um it's, absolutely know, I, no I, I hadn't thought of that and and i think i think this is going to be one of those things where i think i've said it and might not have said it but i'll say it anyway hmm. um it rem- again it reminds me the way that you described kind of sort of whiteness is reserved um and and blackness is as loud brash uh, animated um hmm. it reminds me of of Sean Nagai's work on uh, in a book called Ugly Feelings, which is about black hyperactivity 
uh, and she talks a lot about Eddie Murphy, but also also talks about black stand up comedians, um, black stand up comedy, and the performance or or, or blackness its relation to animatedness and kind of hyperactivity and, and an ex- excess of agency and energy that that sort of can't quite be contained and so yeah you're absolutely right he's the so that what does that then do to his character in bright because he's not he's not like that he's is he then in this in this buddy movie structure because of his his sort of relationship to other black identities in the film uh is he the is he embodying the white character and the orc partner is embodying the other or because i'm trying to get my head around well that's that's how i would see it yeah is that will smith's cast if this is lethal weapon um will smith is well no that doesn't work either because of the 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 sort of uh, the 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 age dynamics there but in whatever Mm. generic cop movie this is will smith is the white grizzled um tommy uh, lee jones yeah play (laughs) probably by josh brolin right now um um uh, Joel Edgerton's character is the black rookie, um, and orcs are coded. I would say I'd need to rewatch the movie to make sure because I think I think there's a danger that we're equating it with with black simply mm. because of you know recent events and things like that, making yeah, it the most yeah. prominent racial sort of category to talk about. But it, I guess there's a there's you could code him as Mexican, um, but I don't necessarily. Yep. I, I would have to think through how the orcs are particularly presented. Um, because they're certainly not presented in a way that fits the descriptions of sort of cultural definitions of blackness we've described thus far. They're not, I mean, they're brutish, so there's that issue, but they're not lively, hyperactive, um, or that kind of stuff. Um, uh, the character, in fact, in fact, the, the character of Jacob is quite beige. That's, I mean, uh, just back to the the fact the film's not that terrific to watch. Um, it, he's quite a dull character. Um, and and one of the reasons he's quite dull is that he has this identity where he's like, I'm a cop. I that's all I am. That's all I ever want to be. Um, I'm not. A, I'm a cop first and an orc second. All this kind of stuff, which sort of denies him any identity other than I'm good at, you know, following a procedure. Um, so he's not that compelling a character actually. But 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 um, I've lost the point I'm making really, which is you know. No, you know, it's, no, no, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll take, I'll take the baton and drop it, but I'll give it a go. Um, no, the, 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 I hadn't kind of thought about Will Smith's position in again in this uh, as, as embodying, as embodying the kind of yeah the grizzly, the grizzly white man. I mean, I'm thinking it's interesting that the the director of the film David Ayer wrote Training mm. Day, which obviously has Denzel Washington. And Ethan Hawke. So it and and I I must admit I haven't seen the film, and I'm probably one of the only people on the planet not to have seen the film. Uh, and it's a film for which for which Denzel Washington won an Oscar. Yeah. Um, I think the film is directed by Antoine Fuqua, if I remember. Um, but Ayo wrote it, uh, and again that kind of plays. I think that plays with some verts the buddy movie structure. Um, there are obviously issues. You mentioned age as well, but I think there are. It's a buddy movie, and buddy movies of themselves, as we've talked about previously, have got this kind of history of of bi- the biracial turn that is often in animated films mapped onto speciesism. And here, it's kind of made quite explicit. But th- to, to have a white character, so sorry, a white actor, Joel Edgerton, uh, Australian, I believe, um, perform as another. You know, he's performing as a um, uh, as an orc, and then you have Will Smith playing white yeah. in, in again these are quite kind of broad, broad terms then then you get into the, the okay so a white man joel edgerton is performing as another um and he's the marginalized and so yeah I, it's it again there's, yeah. A, there's lots to say i'd like to get this film in a seminar room because 
if you flipped it, if you've just flipped that casting round and you made Joel Edgerton Will Smith's character and you had Will Smith playing the orc, the film would be for better and for worse far less safe <laughs> in it, what it's trying to do. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. and and that's that in itself is worth unpacking as to why. There's something about Will Smith playing that role that makes it feel safe and that whatever it's saying, it can't be saying it that savagely because it's, it's the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air saying it. It's, it's the guy from Men in Black. It's the guy from Wild Wild West. It's the guy from Independence Day. Um, all this baggage helps the movie feel more cosy than, um, than it, mm. I think, perhaps needs to be to make the points it's trying to make in a particularly critical and um, particularly biting manner, um, which is why I sort of would prefer if it were yeah. more uh, Men in Black 2, this time with fairies. In fact, wasn't there a movie that was essentially that? What was it called? With um, Jeff uh, Bridges and... Um... Oh, um, I can tell you it was called R.I.P.D. with Ryan Reynolds. That's it, R.I.P.D. Yeah. yeah. I, I, now, now people have tried to make this movie twice. I'd like someone to make it well, because it's fun. But the, the idea's fun, but the execution is poor. Yeah, no, the integration um, of, of sort of, yeah, alien life within a buddy movie structure. Yeah, Will Smith... Uh, and Tommy Lee Jones. Interestingly enough, you mentioned Josh Brolin, uh, who obviously, and interestingly, played the younger yeah. Tommy Lee Jones in the third Men yeah. in Black. So there we go. We're full circle, yeah. as it there were. We um, yeah, I mean, yeah, Bright, as I said, I'd like to get it in a classroom and, and sort of think, mm. think through some of these things um, outside of its sort of social discourse via fantasy, what it's doing with this alternative LA. Well, in order for you to have to get into a classroom, Chris, we're going to need you to um, uh, explain some some of its sort of animated VFX uh, identity because uh, because then you can put it on your syllabus. So, um, is there anything interesting to say about its use of VFX? From my you know luddite perspective, it seemed that I thought it was interesting. I thought we were going to have to have a big conversation about uh, motion capture when I sort <laughs> of read the premise, and actually, it turns out there is no you know uh, Joel Edgerton's mainly. It might be a, a, a shot or two, but he's mainly in heavy prosthetic makeup, which is perhaps an interesting choice as why you why that isn't animated. But um, we could talk about that. But other than that, the main sort of VFX shots seem to be the fairies, the cat, you know, they're captured that way, and the sort of magical effects sequences. Um, you know, there's a whole plot we haven't really gone into about sort of a. Um, um, so bright, a bright in this in this world is is a magical dweller, someone that a person that can use magic, and magic is sort of banned and forbidden, and it's seen almost like a like a nuclear bomb or something like that. And brights are people that can use magic, um, and we see a story where a young bright, a young elf, sort of um, comes uh, comes of age uh, surrounding this sort of plot. So, is there anything that you, that struck you about the VFX that's worth sort of unpacking? I think I was expecting what I was surprised by the decision, same as you, to to go with prosthetics because to pass an image through the the, the intermediate grading suite is quicker, um, more expensive, but ultimately removes the the performer having to sit in you know in this act of fortitude under hot and heavy makeup and practical aesthetic. And, and I actually quite liked the fact that the film went back to that. It reminded me of you know like Farscape. Sure the television program from the 90s where you've got humans dressed up in, in kind of costumes. So I quite enjoyed that. I like the fact that the magic was reserved for the 
I guess now I'm gonna I'm gonna make a faux pas by saying the explicit fantasy elements because all of the film is is fantasy which or it certainly it plays with fantasy within the construction of its fictional world which will which we'll hopefully get to but the I liked the fact that a lot of there was an absence of magic actually apart from these little moments there was an absence of um, effects where I thought there might be so. Uh, it sort of fleshes out the world. You see a few skylines, but actually it's quite grubby in the way that it presents this modern urban fantasy setting. It's, it's quite kind of quite grubby and the film doesn't dwell too much on its effects. You have interactions between the cop um, and his contemporaries. You have a lots of kind of office scenes. You have uh, the arrival of internal affairs and it's only when um, it's only when Will Smith and Joel Edgerton essentially encounter their first bright um and uh, Numi Rapace's character is is called Layla, and she's kind of hunting this wand. Um, and it's really just about the three characters: so the Bright, and then the two police policemen who are all on the run from Layla, who wants this um, who wants this wand. Uh, and so I quite like the fact that the magic, uh, the the VFX, uh, the explicit kind of digital effects, which were four companies: so Allura, Mammal Studios, Olin VFX, and Pixel Playground, to give them their to give them their dues. Um, a kind of a combination. And we've talked previously on the podcast about. Um, how companies work and what kinds of work they get and how work is assigned and, and they kind of contract it out. So I thought it was kind of quite interesting that there are four main studios working on the picture. But um, I liked the fact that it it didn't it made the magic grimy and it did and it made and through through downplaying some of its visual effects, I thought that it sort of yeah, it 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 took the focus away from the fantasy a little bit and tried to make us forget and, and, and sort of and I wonder whether that's where uh, Jacoby's line about being a policeman first. That's what the film's trying to do. It's trying to it's it's fantasy at the base, but it's trying to be a police thing on top of that. So the film is like the character that it's yeah, okay, it's a fantasy film, but the cop story is the most important because on that level is where the tensions play out and the the action set pieces kind of play out. Uh, and then fantasy sort of intrudes and comes out of this wand that for large parts of the film is hidden in a bag. And it's there, and we know it's there, but it's not really. The film doesn't do that much with it, but knowing is enough. I yeah, think. I think I think this film doesn't quite know what to do with magic, um, in the same way the characters or how to handle it. I I've got exactly that note. Will Smith doesn't know what to do with the wand, and that's the a sort of nice little metaphor for what the films because because and this is this is at the heart of this problem between allegory satire and fantasy is that there's been writing on on a lot of these modes because quite often fantasies are funny and quite often fantasies and allegoric and there's a temptation to see both um things fantasies can often be in, unintentionally read allegorically very famously um uh, tolkien wrote a prequel i'm uh, sorry wrote a prologue to the Lord of the Rings after it had been out for about a decade where he sort of basically wrote a little essay at the beginning of the book saying um, people have tried to read this as a allegory for lots of things, including the second world war or the atomic bomb. And I just like to say, stop it. Um, I don't like allegory. I never intended this to be an allegory and this isn't an allegory. Um, I think his, the, the famous line that's often quoted is I cordially dislike allegory and always have done or, or something to that effect. I'm probably missing up a bit of the quote there um so and and there's a lot of sort of historical opposition between allegory and fantasy and the, it comes down to the crux of it is that at the heart of it both satire and allegory are deconstructive impulses so um i think walter benjamin puts it when he talks about allegory that allegory is to writing like um a ruin is to a building um, it it shows us the structure, but it also shows us the, the absence of a structure. So 
allegory deconstructs the literal meaning. Satire deconstructs the literal meaning. It's a deconstructive device. And supposedly fantasy is a constructive device. And the whole point of fantasy is to try and generate the reader's belief. Um, I don't like that word. Um, but to generate the, the the reader's, I guess, enthusiasm for the the magical event. So fantasy as an impulse pushes you towards the magical event and satire and, and allegory pushes you away from it so that you can consider other secondary modes of reading it. Uh, so I think it doesn't know whether it wants to push you towards or away from the magic. Um, sometimes... Uh, and the very nature of the plot requires you to invest in the wonder, splendor, possibilities of magic. And yet it doesn't know how to depict it visually in any interesting way. And it can't resist having scenes where like Will Smith makes gags about the fact that um, his partner has been brought back to life in a sort of slightly, uh, you know, um, reminiscent way of other movies. So I don't think it knows what to do with magic. Mm. No, I, I had a kind of uh, one. I had a Will Smith doesn't know what he's doing in this film moment, but I thought that's not that's not what I mean. Um, what I mean is is that he at the very very kind of climax of the film, he's essentially, and this isn't really a spoiler, but he's holding the wand and he says, "Okay, I'm I'm holding the wand, and now what?" And I thought that's exactly the that's exactly the film's way of. I don't know. It was a sort of how do you handle magic? And perhaps again, that goes back to the, the kind of problem about or the tension between how to integrate fantasy into a particular. Because I hadn't really, and I and I felt this when we we put out the call for alternative presence. I thought it's quite a hard one in many ways, and trying to think about alternative presence in relation to other kinds of fictionality um, uh, and the construction of a fictional world, which um, I'm now going to go on a minute rant on. But fictional worlds, I'm interested in fictional worlds and, and, and this idea of an alternative presence, so a film in this case that is set in a world that is our world but has a kind of pretty standard deviation, in this case, the intrusion of, of magic. And, and as you said at the start, Alex, that the, the film set or the world is set up, that history has been wrought with magic and it's there and it's being rediscovered. But there is something that happened a thousand years ago that sets the terms of the way that we understand the world. So um, there's a lot of writing on fictional worlds. Um, and uh, Ruth Ronan, I think, has usefully given us a def definition of fictional worlds in relation to possible worlds and talks um, about... Uh, so this is uh, writing... Uh, in a book on possible worlds and literary theory and talks about um, that possible worlds or, or sorry, possible worlds create a world or based on the logic of ramification, determining the range of possibilities that emerge from an actual state of affairs. Fictional worlds are based on a logic of parallelism that guarantees their autonomy in relation to the actual world. So I think Bond movies, uh, the, the Mission Impossible movies are fictional worlds because they are kind of they run parallel to our world. They share our technology, our culture, our history, and the thing that makes them fictional is the character of James Bond and Ethan Hunt. But in both of those worlds, uh, Hitler existed, the Second World War happened, apartheid happened, and so forth and so on. So these are fictional worlds, and the thing that makes them fictional is uh, the character. Um, she then argues that possible worlds are rooted more in a logic of this sort of ramification. So the conditional tense, what would happen if something had happened? And that is the central premise 
and I think this is what this film is. It's a it's a possible world because it is rooted in this logic of ramification. Um, the second very very quick point I think builds on that is by a writer called Kendall Walton, who talks about the relationship again between fictional worlds and possible worlds, and he says that fictional worlds are always incomplete, um, and the reason for this is that. A film doesn't need to set out, a Bond movie doesn't need to set out every single rule and part of its logic for us because we can assume things. If you see a police car, you can make assumptions about its uh, justice system. Um, and as Victor Perkins, who also writes on World, says, all that we know about fictional worlds is all that we can possibly know. So we just see what we need to see and we can make assumptions about the rest. Um, but possible worlds, rather than fictional worlds, are always complete because because their premise is rooted in a kind of, what if this this had happened possible worlds need to kind of explain everything for us they need to explain the rules because it's so far out there and so rooted in this logic of ramification that we kind of need to know the details and the logic of it and what rules it's living by so things need to be itemized in a way that in fictional worlds can just happen i don't need to know about bond's history but i probably need to know what happened in this bright fictional world because it's rooted in magic and i think part of the reason the film perhaps doesn't succeed is that it doesn't it doesn't give us enough of what we need to know to understand its central premise as a possible world. Yeah, well, it, 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 the interesting, the logic of ramification struck me in that particularly because that's the problem with magic is that magic, magic by its very nature is a sort of, um, it, 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 you know, it destroys causality. That's its pleasure. Um, it ruptures causality of any kind. Yeah, it doesn't matter if the causality is fictional or not. A, mag- a magical event is an event within any context which ruptures a sense of logic and causality. So what do you do with that in a narrative framework? Because as soon as you've got a creature or a force or a power that can do anything, that can do magic, what there are no stakes anymore, right? So, and the film, this film, try, I think relatively cleverly, but doesn't succeed in the end, it tries to ground magic in a sense of possibility in a sense of um repercussion by sort of framing it as this what oh my god it's a weapon it's a um you know it's 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 a it's a thing that disrupts the world that we want to stay in so how on earth you know but but at the same time it then does you know when when it starts having a positive effect on these people's lives it's hard to contain it within the narrative structure so there's there's always a perennial problem and actually if you if you look at a lot of very popular fantasy texts they're not often that magical in the sense that there's not often a lot of spells going on um most uh you know spells are quite limited magical artifacts magical beings magical moments magical contained magical powers fine but usually they're rooted in some sort of limitation and, and causality. There's very rare that you get a magical event in which you're sort of supposed to celebrate the complete rupture of all causality and logic, because there's nothing much to do with that once you've set that up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this film sort of does set that up as a weapon. And then when the weapon comes into being, you're like, okay, right. So now there are creatures that can do anything, say anything, wave their wand and bring people back from the bet dead. So why am I worrying about any jeopardy anymore? Well, doesn't, doesn't Will Smith's character at the end say, so basically you had this power the whole time. Can't you just magic us to Palm yeah. Springs then? I want to get out of here. And that's, that's the, that is the, that's the crux of the matter that the film again doesn't i think doesn't know what to do with its magic so it it, it posits it as a, as a resolution but ultimately because there is going to ultimately be a sequel uh 
I'd be interested to know one whether that what what it does with its magic, but two whether it starts to kind of flesh out. I read a lot of stuff on the film that said it might be better as a mini series, might have been better as a mini series, yeah. a kind of cumulative exploration of a particular kind of fictional world where magic once was, but isn't anymore. And these are the repercussions, and then it's rediscovered, and then what happens next? Um, so- or if it were more like Men in Black, you'd do a sight gag at the end, and and she would magic them to um you know yeah. bora bora yeah. and you cut to um tommy lee jones at the bar drinking um drinking a daiquiri yeah so yeah. um you know and that would be fine too because then what you're not doing is you're not asking us to actually take the magic seriously you're, you're telling you're, you're using magic as a device for satire and and comedic subversion yeah. which is okay too but so it's 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 back to that perennial problem of what do you do with those three impulses yeah. so, so um we, we yeah we're approaching yeah. we're approaching time i feel we're, we're approaching I think so yeah um i don't have any final I'm, i mean i'm looking at looking at my notes um yeah i think the idea of kind of <laughs> i put how to handle magic but also how useful is magic in the world of the film and i'm not entirely sure that the film has a kind of answer to that um i do think its metaphors and its its sort of allegory work well to to an extent um i do like some of the things i'd like perhaps i'd like a bit more yeah like a bit more magic to identify its possibility and also um you know i don't know a, a bit of engagement with the alternative nature of it being los angeles i think and there's not perhaps as much okay. uh, interrogation of what an alternative Los Angeles might might look like. And some of our other suggestions for alternative presence had things to do with kind of time travel. Um, so ways in which the world is retrospectively altered and these sorts of forking path puzzle narratives where you sort of loop back and see the world with an event changed. But I like the fact this was an alternative presence from the off and asked us to quite quickly get up to speed with some of its sort of um, autonomous logic, the way in which its world is set out and and uh, well, the world has ruins and so you know it has a past and if it has a past, how do things become ruins? Well, probably a war or a battle. What do people war about? Religion, cultural differences, national... So I like the fact it started to mm. play with certain kinds of markers um, in its fictional world building. But um, yeah, I mean, does it, yeah, does it, let's let's give it, you know, it deserves a rewatch and then we'll stick it in a classroom and see what happens. Yeah, no, I, th- I think it's, I don't think it's bad. I think it's an interesting movie. Um, and, and it's a, it's a, you know, we, you know, we in the profession like to use the phrase, it's a good teaching film. And usually you can tell a good teaching film and that the things that are wrong with it are equally interesting as the things that are right with it. So, um, yeah, no, um, I, you know, I, I'd watch the sequel. Um, I don't think it's the worst film I've ever seen. Um, I'm still waiting for someone to do this film, uh, justice properly. Um, sure. maybe, you know, but, but this isn't quite it, but Hey, we got a decent enough podcast out of it. Um, we did. We did. Um, go on then. I'll, I was going to offer to do the roundup, but I can't do the roundup. Well, you, so... if you want to have a go, listeners, no, I really, no, I really don't. If if I do, it will be recorded at a later date and sent to you as a uh, audio file, so you can seamlessly edit it in. But you, you right. have the gift, so go for uh, it. Okay. <clears throat> right. Well, I guess the first bit of admin is of, of is, is to remind everyone that um, on our next listener choice episodes, this is in a month's time. Um, we are looking for your suggestions for your favourite fantasy animation buddies. Okay, so we've 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 staked our claim quite heavily for Men in Black there, um, but but let's um, have some alternatives. <laughs> um, what's your favourite buddy in in fantasy animation? Um, a mismatched pair, an unlikely duo. 
you know, so let us know. Um, favorite pairing, um, and we'll take your suggestions, uh, read as many as we can out on the podcast in a month's time, um, and we'll pick one and, and discuss it on the show, um, potentially with a guest, uh, depending on how we do. Um, but uh, until then, oh, I'll tell you what, one more thing. We have not had many reviews on Apple um, on Apple Podcasts for a while. They've dried up a little bit. We're still getting the star ratings in thick and fast. We really appreciate those. But I tell you what really helps is if you can just write a couple of sentences and give us a star rating, preferably five stars, but that's your choice. Um, tell us about them. Um, uh, you know, briefly while you like the show, it'd be really, really handy. It'll take you about oof, uh, 30 seconds if you're, if you're quick. Um, and it helps us shoot up the visibility. So a quick plug for that, please, whatever you're doing right now, if you buy a computer, could you just stop for 30 seconds and write a review? We would appreciate it. I'll also do a little shout out uh, on that note. Um, do have a little navigate through the website. Um, and as you're listening to podcasts, reading blog posts, if there are things, yeah, things with Bright that you really love, or you'll go back through our, our archive of podcasts and, and uh, a wide range of, of blog posts written by um, a diverse kind of group of, of scholars, um, practitioners, animators, um, do do let us know. We'd love to kind of have think pieces or editorials or things that are kind of responding to some of the debates around something like Bright, where we kind of perhaps don't quite know what to do in terms of making sense of it. So yeah, get in touch. And equally, if you've seen something over the past few months that you uh, think fits the fantasy animation bill, have a look at our How to Contribute tab. You can drop us a line uh, and send us your ideas. We'd love to sort of shore you up for our um, our blog post schedule in 2021. You can contact us through the various means. Uh, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, we're on Reddit, and the handle is Research. F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research. Uh, and you can also use our Gmail address, fananim research at gmail.com send us an email um tell us uh whether you like the show or not um whether we miss something out uh we will hear your corrections and omissions and blush accordingly um, and take part in the conversations online um but until next uh episode that has been us um we will now journey back into the the real present rather than this possible present that we've presented in this episode that's a lot of peas in one sentence for my uh mouth so time to stop talking chris it's been wonderful i will see you next time take care bye so this is where we are it's not where we would want it to be if half the world's gone mad the other half just don't care you see